The title of my message this morning is, What in the World is Going On? And I think I really began to be motivated to do this message this morning when I saw this article. It was the cover of World Magazine. I'll let you take a look at it there for yourselves. Stating a question that I think all of us are asking ourselves. Is this world falling apart? How many of you here today, in the lifetime in which you have lived, can honestly say that the world today is different than it was just 10 years ago? How about 20 years ago? 30 years ago? Okay, now I'm telling some people's age now. 40 years ago. Wow, what a change, huh? What a difference in the world in which we currently live today and the world in which we all knew previously. I think this cover sums up the feelings of many. Is this world falling apart? When we begin to look at the contents of this magazine, this is World Magazine, a very credible Christian worldview magazine that I would encourage you to take time to read for yourself. Their journalism is impeccable. And as a result, they have asked themselves this question. Is this world falling apart? We are contending with things like ISIS, concerned about the next public beheading that is about to take place. Watching ISIS persecute men, women, and children, especially those who are Christians, causing them to either renounce their faith or die. You turn the page of the magazine and it then addresses Ebola, a disease that we thought was somewhat eradicated some years ago has now reemerged in a violent fashion. And we are looking at the spread of Ebola as airports are now looking and examining every plane that is coming from Africa into their nations, into their cities, wondering and questioning, is it possible that Ebola is on board? We here in the United States of America have already seen the effects of Ebola in Dallas, and now they are looking at cases in New York City. Some believe for us to quarantine Ebola patients or possible Ebola patients is against the law. Really? Don't you want to make sure before it goes any farther and that before any more infections take place? How many of you here bank at Chase Bank? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you bank at Bank of America? Raise your hand. Anybody? No. Okay, there's, some, uh, there, there's some over. Have you checked your accounts lately? Isn't it amazing that almost every other day that we turn on the television to watch the news or we go to the internet to read our favorite newspapers, another bank, another store has been hacked. How many of you shop at Home Depot? We, to this day, after the breach of Home Depot, my bank on their website says, if you were a patron of Home Depot, 
please contact us. To this day, it still says on the homepage of their website. How about Target? One scan of your card through Target just recently was then made exposed to who knows who. How many of you enjoy Apple products? Raise your hand. Do you guys understand that where the CEO of Apple went this last week? He went to China and it wasn't for the food. <laughs> he went to China because Apple discovered that iCloud was being hacked by the Chinese government. And they're not after your pictures. They're not after your Instagram account or your Facebook account. He went over there specifically to talk to the Chinese government and say, what in the world is going on? And then we read the next page of the magazine, and it deals with the institution of marriage changing before our eyes into something we no longer recognize, something that I think many never had to con- thought that they would have to contend with looking and watching and observing these things. And then on the next page, an interesting article on biometrics. Maybe that's not a subject that you're familiar with or concerned with. Can anybody raise their hand if you're concerned with biometrics? Thank you, Jay. I'm glad you did. Thank you, Lisa. It is a huge, huge concern. Now, you may not know what that is. How many of you have a new iPhone 6 here? Did you really wait in line? Because we'll pray for you, brother. God bless you. (laughs) But he can access his phone now with the compression of his fingerprint. That's biometrics. That's one form of it. It's being able to identify a person beyond a password. And today... Biometrics is going in a direction that people never anticipated or expected. There's only one question that you can ask up until this point. What in the world is going on? But then we add the last caveat to our discussion. The increasing persecution of Christians. Not just here, but around the world. Politically, verbally, economically, physically. What in the world is going on? Now, most Christians, when they have questions concerning the events of history, immediately throw themselves into the book of Revelation. Because they had heard at one time from somebody that the book of Revelation deals with the events of the last days, and that's absolutely correct. But then they are confronted with seals, trumpets, and bowls, oh my, and they don't know where to go from that. Then they hear about this individual called the Antichrist, the number of the beast, the great Babylon, etc., the battle of Armageddon, and they don't know how to place it all into a cohesive, understandable construction. And then they throw on top of it this event called the rapture, and they say, what in the world is going on? I don't get it. Many Christians find themselves frustrated at that point and give up on the study of biblical prophecy altogether. 
Because they believe, and many churches today believe, that books like the book of Revelation are unattainable. We can't truly understand what they mean. There are many churches who believe the book of Revelation has already fulfilled itself in historical manners. There are others that are so confused by it that they just simply create an allegory structure to explain away every detail that they just can't simply understand or comprehend. And I think that's a shame. For God says the book of Revelation, for those who will read it, carries with it a great blessing to those who read and to those who understand. It isn't a book that we should avoid, but it is a book that we should approach with caution careful examination. I find that the study of biblical prophecy is fascinating. Now, when I say biblical prophecy, we all understand that the Bible contains all kinds of prophecy concerning all different types of subjects. It's not just uh, contained to just the prophecies concerning the last days, and that's called the study of eschatology, the study of the last days. In the Old Testament alone, there are 2,000 prophecies given that have been fulfilled. 2,000 having to do with Jesus, having to do with the nation of Israel, having to do with Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, etc. Many different subjects. 2,000. And God said that these prophecies would be given to confirm the historical accuracy of the Bible. And we can look at those prophecies dealing with a myriad of different subjects and come to the conclusion that the Bible is historically accurate. We also have the promise of God found in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 20 to 22, that anything spoken by a prophet of God must come to pass perfectly. Perfectly, or it is not of God. Because many will often question me, haven't there been a lot of prophets throughout the years outside of the realm of Christianity? And I'd say, you're right. There have been a lot of prophets outside the realm of Christianity. And do you know what they're called? No, I don't know what they're called. They're called false prophets outside the realm of Christianity. Nostradamus, one of the famous prophets that I always seem to have to contend with, even though he's been so wrong so many times, has a track record of just a little over 40% accuracy. California has meant to slip into the ocean so many times, and yet we are still burdened by it. (laughs) It hasn't come to pass. But if God says that he is going to do something, he's going to do it. It's going to come to pass. And we can have the same confidence that the prophecies that he gave us concerning uh, the Old Testament that came to pass 100% according to the way he said they would on a myriad of different subjects will also carry through into the New Testament to allow us to know with confidence that these prophecies will come to pass also in a 100% accuracy just as God said they would. Concerning Jesus' first coming, it has been estimated there are over 300 prophecies that were perfectly fulfilled by Jesus. 
Not prophecies that carried a little bit of ambiguity. Not prophecies and fulfillments that had to be fudged a little bit to make them fit because it was a round peg in a square hole. No, they fit perfectly. When the Bible said he would be born in Bethlehem, where was he born? Bethlehem. Hung between two thieves. What was he hung between? Two thieves, etc. Peter wrote to us, that we, as believers in Jesus Christ, looking back upon the Word of God now in its completion, have the more assuredness because we have the confirmed Word before us, fulfilled prophecy, to allow us to know that this precious book that you have in your lap is the Word of God because the prophecies that He has put forward to this day that have come to pass have come to pass perfectly. Many have expressed to me that they find biblical prophecy fascinating. Unfortunately, they believe that prophecy has been hijacked by many. That biblical prophecies, specifically those of the last days, have been uh, hijacked by the conspiracy theorists. And now the biblical prophecies are almost unrecognizable because they have been so skewed and distorted by these conspiracy theorists. There's also been great objection uh, towards those who would sensationalize biblical prophecy. And it's been going on for decades. And yet, in that sensationalism, it has been more of a distraction and a deterrent than drawing people in to studying biblical prophecy. But then there are those that profit due to biblical prophecies. They make profit among it. They, they make these claims and they said, you need this teaching that I have discovered to go forward and to be able to survive and to withstand what is going to take place next. You need this. And because you need this, I've discounted it for you. From a regular price of $49.95, it is now $48.95 just for you because you need it to go forward. We've all heard this kind of stuff, this nonsense, this garbage. Trust me, what you need to know and to understand biblical prophecy is sitting in your lap. It's called the Word of God. And unfortunately, because of scenarios like this, because Christian websites that uh, supposedly explain biblical prophecies read more like tabloids today than credible sources. And that's why I enjoy magazines like World Magazine. And they did not pay me to say that, by the way. But we have to ask ourselves, what in the world is going on? Unfortunately, many Christians at this point, because of the conspiracy theorists, because of sensationalists, because of the profiteers, have become desensitized to biblical prophecy. And they've kind of put it out of their mind. They don't feel that it's worth exploration. They don't feel that it's necessary. And a relevant component of their daily walk with Jesus Christ Today we begin a journey of many sessions over the next year, intermingled amongst our normal series, teaching series, 
that will allow us as a church to once again regain a healthy biblical approach to biblical prophecy. Because I think it's important, and I'm going to share with you why in just a moment, why I think it's important. But to regain the health, to approach biblical prophecy the way God would have us to approach it, we must adopt some principles. And that very first principle is that in any study of biblical prophecy, the center of all that study should be the person of Jesus Christ. He is the one that we are seeking and looking forward to in his return. It is centered on the person of Jesus Christ. Specifically, the study of the last days should do four things for our personal Christian lives if we have a healthy approach to biblical prophecy. Number one, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, number one. Number two, it should cause us to examine our own lives to see if, number one, we are in the faith, or number two, we are walking according to God's prescriptions within the Scriptures. And number three, it should create a sense of urgency in our lives, knowing that time is finite, and it is possible for the Lord to return at any moment. Now, where do I get these principles from? I get them from the Word of God. In examining the disciples and the apostles themselves, how they conducted themselves in the knowledge of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is something that they anticipated with great anticipation. And we'll demonstrate that in just a minute. It is my hope this morning to help you understand the current events of today looking through the light of Scripture. The study of biblical prophecy should be another component in your biblical world view. Now, many of the events that we spoke about this morning are not necessarily specifically mentioned in Scripture, saying, here is the prophecy and here is the fulfillment. However, though, in saying that, there is a general implication of all of these events. And it's these implications that we need to understand as Christians to personally recognize and to appreciate a healthy study of biblical prophecy. Number one, all of these events show that the world is growing uh, increasingly unstable each and every day. Each and every day, number two, we are reminded it doesn't matter what the efforts are of the society, of the culture, of the world, of the politicians, etc. The world still is declining rapidly without any end in sight. And number three, we should understand that every single day that passes is one day closer to the return of Jesus Christ. And now to top that off, we must watch and observe the continuing aggression and antagonism towards Christians by the world. By the world. 
One of the things that I have done as a pastor is I jumped on Twitter, and after jumping on Twitter, I love what Twitter does for me because they tell me what's trending. And often within those trends, you begin to see patterns. And every single time these trends occur that have relevancy to the Word of God, I see that the world is growing unstable. That no matter what the efforts of man is, that the world continues to decline. And each day I draw closer to the return of Jesus Christ. Well, this morning I hope you're ready to get into your Bibles. Because I want to take you through a little walk of the New Testament this morning by first and, forth, first and foremost demonstrating for each of you today how important the return of Jesus Christ was for those in that day at that time. Do you realize that every New Testament book talks about the return of Jesus Christ? That every writer has included the return of Jesus Christ within the letters that they have penned. And as you read these verses that specifically refer to the return of Jesus Christ, you get an understanding of the attitude that they had towards the Lord and His return. And it's that attitude that I want to adopt as Christians because I think it's biblical and incredibly healthy. I want you to become a believer in Jesus Christ that adds biblical prophecy to your Christian worldview. And it is my hope that at the end of our time together today and in the days following throughout the course of the year, that we will hone that worldview and that you'll be able to look at the world through the light of Scripture and see where everything is going. Because here is what we have in our lap. We have in our lap how it all ends, right? And so we see how it all ends. We've been given the last chapter of the book, and now we can begin to watch the world move towards that ending. Again, for three purposes to know that the world is unstable. And therefore, knowing that the world is unstable and passing away, we should not be of the world. We should be about our Father's business. Number two, to remind us that no matter what the efforts of the world are, things continue to decline. And number three, we are one day closer to the return of Jesus Christ. Obviously, in the four Gospels, Jesus himself created the anticipation amongst his disciples. They ask him in Matthew 24 very specifically, what will the signs of your coming be? And you can look at those and read those for yourself. An incredible parallel to Matthew 24 and Revelation chapter 6. I believe that Jesus articulates for his disciple the seven seal judgments. But listen to these words of our Lord when he wrote in Matthew 24, 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. You don't think that's setting up an anticipation? 
You don't think that Christ was setting up an expectation in the minds of his followers? He certainly was. For in the very first book after the book, the Gospels, the book of Acts, Luke's right for us that after the disciples were watching their Lord ascend in Acts chapter 1, in verses 10 and 11, we read, And while they were gazing into heaven, and he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The last thing that they hear as they're watching their Lord ascend into heaven, the last thing that they hear from the angels. Remember the first thing they heard? Good tidings, good news. Messiah is here, right? The angels proclaimed that to the shepherds in the fields. Now the angels say, listen, the same way he left, same way he's coming back. Anticipation? Expectation? You bet. When Paul wrote to Titus, a young man who was pastoring a church in Titus 2, 11 through 14, Paul wrote these wonderful words. For the grace of our God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, that is, speaking of Christ, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Why? Waiting, verse 13, for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. God and Savior being of one person, that is the person of Christ. Who gave himself for us uh, to redeem us from the lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul now writes to Titus saying that, look at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ should challenge you and ask you to consider in what manner you are living your Christian life. Renouncing the old and embracing the new life in Jesus Christ. And the return of Jesus Christ was one of those catalysts that would cause that type of examination. Examine yourself to make sure that you are living as he would have you to live in anticipation for the Lord's return. Peter, one of my favorites, had the same gift as I do, foot in mouth. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that... The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that, is, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Another term for his return. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter uses the return of the Lord Jesus Christ here to encourage those who are going through trials. Great difficulties. These Christians, like many today, were being physically persecuted for their faith. 
But Peter writes to them and says, these persecutions, these difficulties, these trials in which you're occurring, God is using to purify your faith, to strengthen your faith, to make it genuine, to make it strong. And that way, at His return, it will, be that, it will glorify Him and you will be praised for it. Interesting take on the return of Jesus Christ. Our brother James wrote it this way in James 5, 7, and 8. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the latter rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The disciples, you will notice, anticipated the Lord's return in their day. And as Peter encouraged them to withstand the trials and to persevere through them, persevere through them, James is now encouraging us, be patient. Knowing that God is in control, all things are happening according to his sovereign plan, and it's unfolding perfectly, and it will result in the Lord's return. Be patient. The latter and the early rains, indicating that there is a progression, there's a plan that God knows what he's doing. You know, often I used to hear people pray, oh Lord, come back today. If the Lord would have come back 28 years ago, who would have not been saved at this moment? Yeah, look at the hands. I had so many of us. Incredible. But God's patience, long-suffering of man. But one day... He will return. And there will be judgment. There will be recompense. There will be a restoration of all things. Jude encourages us this way when he refers to his half-brother's return, like James also. When Jude wrote in 24 and 25, he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, which is another term, presence of his glory with great joy. He anticipated the Lord's return. And here he is saying that it is the Lord who can keep you from stumbling. And he goes on to say, Therefore, keep yourself in the love of God. Walk as close to him as possible, and he will keep you from stumbling. As he concludes in verse 25, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority, before all time and now forever. Amen. And then our beloved John, in which we are reading on Wednesday evenings in the book of 1 John, wrote this, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence, not shrinking from him in shame at his coming. All of these, these are the writers of the New Testament in different letters, are anticipating the Lord's return and they are attaching to those anticipations certain exhortations and qualities that you and I need to embrace and to adopt ourselves if we are going to have a healthy understanding of the Lord's return. And that was just a brief look at these things. Now at this point, you may say, yes, they anticipated it in their day. But we're 2,000 years removed from that day. Which I would then respond, we are 2,000 years closer to the Lord's return. 
So the question then becomes, well, when did the last days actually begin? And we find the answer to that in Acts chapter 2, when Peter, in giving a reasonable defense for the actions of the speaking in tongues, allowing different tongues to be spoken, to allow different people there gathered in Jerusalem to hear the praises of God in their own languages, The people of uh, Jerusalem thought that what they were hearing were just simply drunk followers of Jesus Christ. And then Peter came out and refuted that, quoting the book of Joel. And in his quote of the book of Joel, in verse 17, he begins by stating, And in the last days it shall be, declares the Lord, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, And your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And so the beginning of the last days, according to everyone that I have read, they look to Acts chapter 2. The last days that have now counted for 2,000 years. But there seems to be a renewed urgency in the study of biblical prophecy, and there are those who believe that we are incredibly close like myself. So what has spurred that particular interest? Well, as I began to look and to read, I found that there was a very interesting event that took place in the last century that really encouraged people to re-examine biblical prophecy concerning the last days. And those who were Bible students and prophecy students saw that the return of Israel was the beginning of the fulfillment of the very last days. Pointing to Ezekiel 36 and 37, stating very clearly that it was only the beginning for those prophecies in those chapters have not yet been fully realized. They will be fully realized in the millennial kingdom. But Israel gathered to their nation again set the world stage for the unfolding of the book of Revelation's judgment towards the Jewish people that Daniel had prophesied in Daniel chapter 9. It allows them to explain and to understand what God is doing to the whole world and to Israel at that moment. And so there was a renewed interest people became very, very, very interested in it once again. How they were brought back into their land as it was prophesied by Ezekiel, no longer two sticks, but one nation, no longer Israel and uh, Judah, but now one nation. But it still hadn't been completed because it talks about a king resuming the throne and them being all believers. But it sure allowed for what events would be preceding the millennial kingdom, and that is in the book of Revelation. And then we have that promise of Amos 9.15. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Israel, the Jewish people, had been... uh, vacated from the land for millenniums, almost two millennium. And all of a sudden they regather in the wake of the horrific events of World War II. And Bible students and prophecy experts began to revisit things and to look at things again. 
It is my personal opinion that the regathering of Israel cannot be easily dismissed. And therefore, we should examine the scriptures as we should, in the light of the current events, knowing this first and foremost, that God has stated that the prophecies of the word of God would come to pass verbatim, not just partially, but verbatim, as all things play out. Since that time, many have revisited various passages of Scripture and have begun comparing them to world events using Matthew 16, 1-4 as a reasoning. When Jesus approached the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders at that time, they approached Jesus in a manner to test Him. And they asked Him this question. And to test Him, they asked Him to show them a sign from heaven. And He answered them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for it is a red sky. And in the morning, you say, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. And then Jesus went on to say, even an adulterous generation seeks uh, for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except that the sign of Jonah. And he left them and departed. Now, obviously, Jesus was speaking about his first coming at that moment. That the religious leaders, men who prided themselves on knowing the Old Testament as thoroughly as they did, missed the 300-some prophecies that would all point to Jesus being the Messiah. And he said, you should have known. There are over 600 prophecies concerning his second. And the question that scholars ask is, should we know? Should we be watchful? Should we be concerned? And so the study of the comparison of world events since 1948 in the Bible has now begun. And there has been many, many wrong parallels being been drawn. Obviously, we all went through the stages where every other day another person was writing the book on who the Antichrist was. And when it didn't come to pass, then there was more problems that were found. Of course, we've all gone through those who are predicting dates, etc. But no one knows the day or the hour that it will occur. We've all been there. We've all seen it. But the Bible is still the Bible. And if Jesus is indicting those who should have had biblical knowledge concerning his first coming... The question that has been asked, we who have biblical knowledge, who are part of his church, should we not be about and concerned with the fulfillment of prophecy concerning his second second coming? Paul made it abundantly clear in his letters to the Thessalonians, which I find so fascinating because he spent such little time with them, yet he was diligent to bring about an understanding of end time events to their knowledge. Very interesting. It was like Paul conducting a new believers class, and in that class he decided to talk about biblical prophecy of the end times, eschatology. But anything that we look at at the world must be compared against Scripture. And before we compare anything against the Scriptures, we must first know what the Scripture says in its proper context. We also must be true to the fitting of the world event. Meaning if it is a square peg event, 
And the prophecy is a round hole. Let's not try to make something fit that doesn't fit. Does that make sense? Because understand that the Old Testament prophecies of Jesus were fulfilled perfectly, perfectly in his first coming. So you may be saying, well, how important then is that to my walk? Well, I think it's incredibly important to your walk that you look about these things. Paul called it the blessed hope. That's where our hope is derived in that Jesus Christ will return and set all things right. Is that not a hope or what? It's a wonderful hope. It moves us to live our faith with urgency, knowing that time is finite, that tomorrow is promised to no one. It creates an uh, intimacy with Christ because we believe it's, his return is imminent. It requires us to examine our life to make sure we are walking according to the obedience of Scripture. Well, you may say then, Pastor, what should I be looking for? Well, first of all, let's say what Paul says we should be looking for in 2 Timothy 3.1. But understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulties. I find that to be the one great understatement of the ESV translation. The word difficulty there in the Greek is troublesome. It could also be done perilous times. One uh, linguistic es- expert on the Greek language wrote this, Therefore the expression in 2 Timothy 3.1 can perhaps be best rendered in some languages as in the last days people will suffer very much. All right, so the stage is set. As we get closer to the return of Jesus Christ, it's going to become more difficult for us as Christians. You might be like, great, Pastor, now I'm really edified, feeling real good. But know that He who is with you will never leave you nor forsake you. As we consider implications of world events and where things are trending, we must understand that we know how it all ends. And there is one individual, one figure that it seemed like Jesus, the apostles, were all concerned about, that were at, was actually prophesied in the Old Testament, his name, and he, we know him as the Antichrist. Now, I'm not going to identify you uh, for this morning who the Antichrist is, because I think that would be wrong to do. But in the book of Revelation, we find that the Antichrist is not only one who is opposed to Jesus Christ and to God the Father. Empowered by Satan, he is one who desires to replace God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And in the book of Revelations, and I'm drawing broad brushstrokes for you this morning, we see all politics, economics, and religions converging and led by one man. At the same time, we see an ever-increasing persecution of those who are Christians. And as a result of the difficulties created in the last days, we will also, as Paul told us to recognize, there would be a great falling away, people falling away, leaving Christ. So we know the end. And when I look at world events and I look at things that are transpiring before me, I'm fascinated 
Where is it all going to end? And is it just another stepping stone? Is it just another brick in the wall, as one band had put it? Creating that Broadway that ends in destruction. So I know some of you may be fascinated by world events and maybe looking for one example of a trend that I see that is so prevalent today. And that trend is the manner in which we handle our currency. Now, just if we're family here, okay, we're all believers in Jesus Christ. How many of you in your wallet actually still carry cash? Okay. All right. Those are the people to ask for offerings. Um, (laughs) Isn't it amazing how many people don't carry cash any longer? How countries in Europe are already moving for a cashless society? They may be asking, what does all of this have to do with the end times? There's a fascinating verse or a group of verses found in Revelation 13, verses 16 through 18. That the Antichrist himself in this period of time where he is then in control will require the world to create allegiance to him and to solidify that allegiance by a mark on their hand or on their forehead. And then John adds for us a very interesting note, a qualifier, that without this mark they cannot buy or sell. Let me read the word for you. Also it, speaking of the Antichrist, caused all, both great and small, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on their right hand or on their forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast, the number of its name, and this calls for wisdom. Let the one who understands calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man And his number is 666. The question the biblical scholars have asked themselves, in 1948 this seemed impossible. Now what does this buying and selling uh, mean? Well, most believe that the words that are used there in Greek, it means a control of the economy. That's the fundamental pillar of any economy is the buying and selling of merchandise. Does that make sense? that it would be illegal for individuals to buy and sell to engage in the economy unless they had this mark. And then some speculated that it would be the means of transaction. That if someday all banking became computerized and centrally located, hmm, I think that's happened. But now we ask ourselves, how has the actual disbursement of money changed in our culture. I find this fascinating. For the last 20 years, you've been hearing, especially in economic circles, the necessity for globalization. That's why throughout the late 1980s, early 1990s, there was a continued examination of tariffs between countries because they began to realize that there was a market outside of the United States of America. Europe saw that there was a market outside of Europe that they wanted to tap into for economic purposes. So the globalization process happened starting in the early 1990s, and it went all the way to 2008 before it really was challenged. 
In 2008, we saw how fragile the global economy actually is. When one portion of it began to collapse, it all began to collapse. It was like the game Jenga. You just take one stick out and it all begins to fold, and that's exactly what happened. And all of us remember the 2008 global collapse conscientiously because we were all through it. And today we see the individual computing system that is binding the entire global economy is so weak and fragile. The infrastructure of it in and of itself is it's not impregnable. It is absolutely easily accessed. Now, you have to understand, when they talk about hacking, okay, they're not talking about some college kids in their pajamas who haven't showered for four or five days, banging on their computers, their laptops, trying to hack into your bank, you know, with a bowl of uh, Count Chocula next to them and such, you know, seeing how they can disruptively, uh, you know, make themselves known in the global economic community. These aren't individual hackers. These are nations pounding away at our economic infrastructure. I mean, you understand that, don't you? That I have no doubt, I am speculating, so I want to make that clear, but I have no doubt that there's a warehouse in China with a group of people with laptops just banging at the American economy. Just banging at it. And when they couldn't crack that, they took down iCloud. Tim Cook flew over there and said, What are you doing? This should raise concerns for all of us. I'm not telling you to run home and put all of your money in your mattress. But I'm telling you that it's very interesting that the direction in which the economy is going and how important is the economy to the citizenship of the United States of America in particular? How important is it? Huge. It's always in the top three when it comes to every presidential and political election. The economy, the economy, the economy, the economy. And you see how it plays into the politics. So if the Antichrist is going to have this world dominance, he must control politics, he must control economics, and he must control religion. And I believe that's exactly what he is going to do. Well, today we have the technology to know that a scenario like Revelations chapter 13 is very plausible possible. And I give this to you for you to consider. Consider all the ways we can pay for something today. There's numerous number of ways. Maybe you've explored Bitcom and other forms of payment methods. But just recently, you who are Apple fanboys and girls out there, obviously found that with iOS 8, you now have Apple Pay where your cell phone contains pictures of all of your credit cards. Boy, no one's ever lost their cell phone, have they? Now you're losing your cell phone and your credit cards. And if the phone isn't enough, then you have the watch. Okay? Listen to what Apple said in talking about this new option of paying. Paying in stores or within apps have never been easier. Gone are the days of searching for your wallet. The wasted moments finding the right card. They don't even talk about cash. Now payments happen within a single touch. 
Apple Pay will change how you pay with breakthrough contactless payment technology and unique security features built right into your device that has already been hacked by China. I added that. (laughs) That you have with you every day. So you can use your iPhone, Apple Watch, or iPad to pay in a simple, secure, and private way. Our cell phones, our smartphones, have has greater computing technology than the computer that assisted the astronauts making their way to the moon in the 1960s. And so now we have told people and individuals that cash isn't necessary. We can just choose one of the virtual cards on our phone and so forth. Well, I've picked on the Apple people long enough, I think it's about time I got you Google people involved. Google has gone one step further, and I know this personally because across from where I live is Motorola, which last year, Motorola, or early this year, sold off a large portion of their Moto X division because they were getting out of cell phones because they were going in a different direction. Digital tattooing. Digital tattooing. Now, this isn't some fascinating, you know, science fiction plot. This is happening today. Google is putting billions of dollars into this technology. A tattoo that is permanently implanted somewhere on your body that will do all the same things your smart device did in the sense of carrying your personal data, including the ability for for financial transactions. Think about this for a minute. The Bible was written 2,000 years ago when this kind of technology wasn't even possible. And if it is going to be fulfilled in this manner, is it probable? Is it possible? Can we see it fulfill in this manner? In the late 1970s, Hal Lindsey wrote a book, and he speculated on a lot of the manners and ways that the book of Revelations was possibly going to be fulfilled. And some of it was pretty wild and outlandish. But they also talked about the creation of barcodes. Now, in that evolutionary stage, it didn't seem very likely that people were going to have a barcode tattooed on their body. And of course, we didn't have the technological superstructure that we do today, that everything is linked through the internet, the web, that we have today. But now today... As technology has progressed, we have such probable things. I leave this in your lap this morning because this is only one aspect. There are dozens, all converging at the exact same time. The rise of the persecution of Christians the aggressiveness of Russia spoken about throughout the Bible occurring in the last days. Russia creating an alliance with Iran, which was something unheard of 30 years ago, has already taken place, spoken about in Ezekiel 38. Is the world converging to set the stage for his return? That is what we are going to explore in our sessions together, sporadically placed throughout the next year in our series called What in the World is Going On? But you may say that there are many who scoff at these things, and especially those who call themselves Christians, and I read you 
this from Peter. 2 Peter 3, 1 through 7, in closing. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior uh, through your apostles. Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of the waters and through the water by the word of God. And by the means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Peter then goes on to say that as one day is as a thousand years to the Lord, is one day towards us. They'll scoff. They will ridicule us for believing in the return of Jesus Christ. But every letter in the New Testament champions that cause and tells us to be watching be ready for he is coming soon why is it so important for our walks it is our blessed hope it creates an urgency within us to live faithfully unto him to examine our lives and to live for his glory what in the world is going on we are getting closer to the Lord's return.